0: a fortnight ago ukraine announced it was going on the offensive to reclaim some of the territory that the russians had captured looks like the ukrainians are about to launch a major high-stakes counter-offensive in an effort to recapture a crucial city from the russians That city is Kherson in southern Ukraine. Ukrainian forces are retaking nearby villages and inching closer and closer to what could be one of the most significant battles of this war. But while Russia bolstered its defenses around Kherson in the south, the Ukrainians launched another lightning counteroffensive in the east to devastating effect. This morning, a stunning transformation on the battlefield. Ukraine breaking through
2: Russian lines near Kharkiv and retaking towns that had been under Russian control for months. The Russians just weren't ready to have a fight. And when confronted by the Ukrainian attack, most of them seemed to have turned tail and fled.
0: It's an extraordinary success for the Ukrainians, which could shape the rest of the war
3: that will embolden and encourage countries to go on providing more weapons and maybe you know change the balance of force even more towards uh, the Ukrainian side
0: but faced with humiliation on the battlefield and criticism at home how will russia respond
2: from President Putin's perspective, this is his war. He cannot conceive that he would lose. And there is this danger that if the choice was between losing and the use of a small nuclear weapon to bring the thing to a cataclysmic halt, well, you can see the temptation.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manvin Rano. Today, Ukraine. Is this a game changer?
3: I'm Richard Spencer, I'm a correspondent for The Times and I've been in Ukraine for a couple of weeks and I'm now based in Kharkiv and I've been covering the recent counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces.
0: And Richard, tell us a bit about that because a few weeks ago we were all told to sort of look at the counter-offensive in Kherson. When did you realise that something else was afoot?
3: I was covering the counteroffensive in Kherson, which was making slow progress. Ukraine says it's broken through enemy lines at several points near the southern city of Kherson. It's mounting a campaign to retake territory occupied by Russia.
0: The push comes after weeks of preparation.
3: They'd made a couple of minor breakthroughs in a couple of places along that front on the uh, southwest of the front line between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And I was already planning to sort of drive a bit east and see what was going on further east, given that the progress was pretty slow in Kurzon. The Russians were you know, giving ground, but not a huge amount. And as we drove east, news started coming in of this counter-offensive from the Kharkiv direction. And we heard at first that the town of Balaklia was under attack by the Ukrainians. And then suddenly we saw on Twitter pictures of the Ukrainian flag being raised above Balaklia And that was on about thursday of last week
0: just how much of a surprise was that for you seeing that
3: we'd already seen some gains in the Kurzon front in a couple of places the ukrainian flag had been raised above you know a couple of villages i think what was surprising was what came next we discovered that there was this concentration of forces that the ukrainians had managed to gather really without the Russians spotting them in this particular point of the front on the eastern side of Ukraine. And what we what really took us by surprise was what happened next, which was the Ukrainians didn't just stop there, having taken this town. They thrust on, and it was clear that they were aiming for a place called Kupiansk, which is kind of further on from balaklia which is a railway junction. And it's a very key railway junction because it controls the railway lines that the Russians have been using from Russia itself into eastern Ukraine and to some of the sort of front uh, cities further south, nearer the Donbass area, which, as we know, is the kind of the central focus of Russian efforts. So it was clear that the Ukrainians were going to try and make for this town. And we thought, oh, that'll be an interesting battle there in the days and weeks to come. But, you know, lo and behold, within two days, that town had fallen too. That was on sort of Friday. And then it just turned into a route. The Russians were then cut off from the city of Izium, which was to the southwest of Kopiansk, and clearly saw that they were going to be surrounded. So they just left everything. They left their tanks, their weapons, and they just fled down the one road back towards the Donbass that was still open to them. So by Sunday, the Ukrainians were knocking at the door of all the places that we saw these very long and grinding battles for in April, May and June, like Siervodnetsk. And we have seen over those three months early in the summer, this very, very brutal war, this artillery war in which hundreds of troops were dying each day on both sides for very kind of small Russian gains, you know, a couple of miles here, a couple of miles there that battle going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then suddenly we saw the Ukrainians making huge gains. I think the current figure is 6,000 square kilometres in less than a week, which is really quite startling. So I think that was really what caught us by surprise.
0: And tell me, what was it like when you arrived? Because as those towns were being liberated, these were areas that had been under Russian control for some time, what were you finding as you
3: went in? The military had been very sensitive about this and were trying to keep journalists away from the front lines and away from liberated areas, away from the military operation. But we were able to sort of get into some of the villages and some of the towns and made it into Balaklia, this town that was the, the original target of the offensive. I have to say what we first found was, I mean, to me, it was rather extraordinary. I mean, I, I, you know, you cover this war and, you know, every war is different in terms of how civilians react. It depends on the situation, the nature of the offensive. And in Ukraine, you've had this situation where obviously a lot of the men have been called up mm. or are in cities working for their families anyway. A lot of the women and children have taken their families to their children to safety either in western Ukraine or further afield into Poland or, you know, even Britain and places. So when you come to these villages on the front lines or that have been under occupation, they're almost entirely elderly people there. The first village I came to, there were five residents left in this village. A lot of the houses have been destroyed. The Russians have been based there for I think five and a half months. There were abandoned Russian vehicles, military vehicles in the street. Craters, shell holes dotted around everywhere, bits of shrapnel. And these five elderly people, women in their 80s, some of them living on their own. And then we went to another village where we met an 86 year old. I mean, incredible resilience, you know, living in very straightened circumstances. They weren't getting much food. They were dependent on the Russians to give them food. They couldn't get to town to go shopping. They couldn't contact their relatives. There was no phone signal. In some cases, there's no electricity or water. So these elderly people living in these very, very tough circumstances for months and months and months. And as I say, this one woman we met who was 86, you can do the maths yourself. She'd been born in, in the 30s in a time of famine under the Soviet Union. She'd lived through the German occupation in the Second World War throughout the whole Soviet period, and her son had been killed by a sort of random shell in the early weeks of the war at the age of um, 59, if I remember. You're just sort of caught short, really, my almost breath taken away by the incredibly tough lives these people have led, and to come through 86 years and you know, still be faced with war and loss and hunger just struck me as extraordinary.
2: How had
0: they been treated by the Russians?
3: I mean, they all were very anti-Russian. They'd all suffered from looting. The gentleman I spoke to yesterday, a man in his 70s, he actually had Russians billeted all around his farmhouse. He lived in a very remote hilltop, and there are three farmhouses on this hilltop, and the Russian soldiers were in the other two farmhouses. And they basically came around and stole from him every day. He said they stole sugar to brew alcohol with. They even stole his salt. They stole all his food. They stole his booze. Pretty grim. At one stage, they held a gun to his head to threaten him to reveal where he was hiding food from them, and you know, fired the gun into the ceiling from right next to his ear, so he was kind of dazed and concussed. I mean, nothing quite on the scale that we saw in those villages west of kiev we saw those murders and rapes and really gruesome behavior by the russians in the early stages of the war but i think partly of the demographics of the people they found you know i think it's the temptations of brutality are, are somewhat less when all the people you're guarding look like your mother and grandmother
0: yeah what was it like when they saw the Ukrainian soldiers turning up? That must've been a moment of great relief.
3: You know, when I saw some of these videos first coming out of elderly Ukrainian women running down the street and hugging the Ukrainian soldiers, I kind of, I guess I was slightly cynical. We've all seen pictures being used for propaganda of that sort of thing over the years. and decades, even centuries now. But I have to say, you know, when you were there, this is very much what they said they did. I came across this very, very excitable woman in her 60s today in in Balaclía. She lived with her mum who was 91, they had this beautiful garden and a bit of land underneath the garden going down to the river and the forest. It was a very beautiful setting actually, amazing vegetable patch full of pumpkins and flower beds full of roses, it was really quite idyllic and um, so I stopped there for a while and we was were chatting to them and this 63 year old who was a retired biology teacher was talking about her, you know, her mum having run, as I say, it was 91, having run out in the street and dragged in a Ukrainian soldier and started kissing him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, um, it was, you know, the mum, the 91-year-old, did a little dance for the Times. She was very um, lively and excitable.
0: Coming up... The Ukrainians are celebrating, but how might Russia respond? What does the Ukrainian advance actually mean for the future of the war? We'll hear from General Sir Richard Barons. That's after a quick message from a colleague.
3: Hi, I'm Patrick Maguire, Red Box editor of The Times. From Partigate to Ukraine, there's never been a more interesting time to cover British politics. And I'm lucky enough to do it every single day. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: My name is General Sir Richard Barron. I'm co-chairman of Universal Defense and Security Solutions, and I was previously the commander of Joint Forces Command in the UK. And
0: Richard, over the past week or so, everyone was expecting Ukrainian forces to attack the Russians who were occupying Kherson. Just explain what's been happening in the last few days.
2: So... We were expecting to see a Ukrainian offensive around Kherson and we expected this to be a slow and patient operation because taking the city in a frontal assault would be a very costly and not necessarily successful undertaking. And that assault is underway and we should recognise that Kherson, the city, is vital to Ukraine. It controls the access to the river that runs all the way up to Kiev. It's part of the way that you protect the coast round to Odessa. So it has... military and strategic and political significance. What we've seen in the last week or so, and it was a surprise, were the Ukrainian military spotting that the Russians were holding the area around Kharkiv very lightly, and they very successfully moved combat power up and have assaulted that area without alerting the Russians that they were coming. And when they've conducted that attack, they've done it skillfully. They've made very good use of the Western delivered weapons that they have to remove the ace card the Russians have, which is their massive advantage in artillery. But above all, they've encountered Russian forces that were not only thin, relatively speaking, but also had no stomach for the fight. And it's that difference in morale that has been vital here.
0: Now, that's intriguing. Why do you think that is?
2: So the Russians can't hold. A 1400 mile front in strength everywhere. And when they looked at the area around Kharkiv, they knew they couldn't take the city and they knew they needed to hang on to some of the territory around Kharkiv to protect the shortest supply route that runs from Russia down into the Donbass. But what we saw very clearly was this area being held by very thin, very light, and quite inexperienced troops, partly because a lot of the Russian attention had swung south to support the response to the Ukrainian assault around Kherson.
0: So just militarily, I mean, were you impressed, the element of surprise in catching them off guard?
2: So I think what worked very well was the Ukrainians spotted an opportunity. The second thing they did well was move the combat power they needed to mount this assault without Russia detecting it. And part of that was continuing to talk up the offensive around Kherson. And then the third thing they did very well is they have worked out how to attack the Russians using the longer range, more precise weapon systems that the US and the UK and others have provided. Because it is this that has neutered the Russian reliance on their own artillery system. They've worked out how to dislocate the Russian defense. And all of those things seem to be less important than the fact that the Russians just weren't ready to have a fight. And when confronted by the Ukrainian attack, most of them seem to have turned tail and fled.
0: So, you know, we've all sort of got used to watching what's happening in Ukraine and expecting it to be quite a long war. You know, it's a war of attrition, could go on for ages. And seeing this very rapid assault, I think a lot of people were tempted to think this is a real game changer. Is it?
2: It's too early to tell whether this is really a major change or not. The thing we can be confident about it is it has shown that Ukraine is able to go successfully on the offensive. It's shown the fragility of the Russian defence unless it's very well constructed, well led and well reinforced, which is not the case here. So this may prove to be the high watermark of the Russian occupation of Ukraine. It does not mean that removing Russian forces from the remaining 20% of Ukraine is either a given or going to happen quickly or easily.
0: And how will Russia retaliate? I mean, we've already sort of seen attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure. There have been blackouts in parts of the country. How much worse could this get?
2: So I think there are two things we can be sure of in the Russian response. The first is they will want to make life as difficult as possible for the Ukrainian forces and the civilian population who have now just been liberated. So the laying waste of civil infrastructure, the cutting of power, the removal of food supplies, those sorts of things are designed to slow up the Ukrainian advance. The second thing we can be sure of is Russia will want to stop this offensive as soon as it can and so it will move reinforcements of firepower logistics and higher quality troops to defend where it wants to defend and it looks as if russia has effectively decided to give up the whole of the kharkiv oblast and defend on another line that makes plenty of military sense what we don't know is two really important things first of all will russia mount a counter-attack in order to take that territory again That seems to be beyond them right now. And the second thing, perhaps more troubling for next year as this war continues, is that if the Ukrainians really were able to continue the attack, if they were able to start to push Russian forces out of areas they care about, which would be, for example, separatist areas of the Donbass, then doctrinally, Russia will be tempted to reach for weapons of mass destruction at a tactical level. So chemical weapons and very small nuclear weapons to stop this Ukrainian success if they think it's existential.
0: I mean, that sounds like a major escalation. How worried are you watching all of this?
2: So I think we should be worried for two reasons. One is in Russian military doctrine, the recourse to these, for example, small nuclear weapons or chemical weapons, To prevent a defeat occurring, which you believe is absolutely crucial to the future of your state, is normal. And we may not have seen a nuclear weapon being used since the Second World War, but the Russians have around 2,000 small nuclear warheads, and this is the sort of thing they have in mind when they made them. And the second thing is from... President Putin's perspective this is his war he cannot conceive that he would lose and there is this danger that if the choice was between losing uh, that is a military defeat that saw Russian forces ejected from much of Ukraine and the use of a small nuclear weapon to bring the thing to a cataclysmic halt well you can see the temptation.
0: Richard most people won't really know What to imagine when we talk about tactical nuclear weapons? I mean, just explain what that looks like. What would an attack look like? How damaging is
2: it? So typically a tactical nuclear weapon would have a yield of about 10 kilotons, so 10,000 tons of high explosives. So the device itself generally detonated in the air rather than on the ground. That actually reduces the radiation problem. But it's deeply hazardous if you're within about two miles of it when it goes off. But it's not much hazardous beyond that. So the use of these weapons is shocking if you're in that small area, but it would not stray beyond the borders of Ukraine other than, of course, politically and strategically. This is wholly different from the thousand megaton weapons that would be used if there was a general nuclear exchange, say between Russia and the United States, where these are the sorts of weapons that would destroy a city the size of Washington and in combination probably destroy the planet.
0: So it's, it's, it's not that. This is a much more limited attack, but still
2: yes. devastating. So, so this is devastating, but the challenge is from a Russian military doctrinal perspective The use of these weapons is not unthinkable. Indeed, it's part of how they would respond to a difficult situation. In the West, the West does not think like that and regards these weapons as unpalatable and and frankly doesn't have many of them. It is not necessarily the case that the use of a tactical nuclear weapon would in any way provoke general nuclear exchange between Russia and the West, and Russia knows that. So the problem for the West is if Ukraine is as successful as we want them to be, as successful as we are helping them to be, and they really start to move Russia out of Ukraine and Russia thinks it's going to be defeated. At that point, we must anticipate the possibility of them reaching for chemical weapons or tactical nuclear weapons. And in anticipating it, we should have decided how we will ensure that doesn't happen by spelling out the consequences to Russia well in advance.
0: And just talk us through how this is being discussed in Russia at the moment. Do we know how they're responding to Ukraine's recent successes?
2: So the visible response is quite limited, which is, first of all, to deny and dismiss that this attack has either occurred or is successful. From a military perspective, we've seen reinforcements moving to stem the flow. But it is not at all clear that this would provoke a counterattack to try and take all that territory back again, because there are other areas of this war that are more important to Russia, the Donbass itself, and the southern coast, including Crimea. And I think right now, Russia does not feel that it is in imminent peril of a major strategic loss. Because let's be clear, this attack that we've seen over the last week or so is not tantamount to removing Russia from 20% of Ukraine.
0: What are Russia's options next? I mean, obviously, you've talked about tactical nuclear weapons, but I mean, is this a point where they decide whether they're going to double down or start to sort of make it look like this war isn't that important to them?
2: So perhaps some of the coverage has been about creating a situation where the blame can be placed on the generals or officials or whoever, but clearly not President Putin. We were expecting to see in the Donbass in this month, in September, Russia begin to annex Ukrainian territory formally into the Russian Federation, which, of course, Ukraine and much of the world would immediately reject. That seems to be on hold. And I think Russia has shied away from the prospect of actual full mobilization of its military, political and industrial resources. That seems to be beyond the stomach of the Russian people to to want to bear. So they have to fight this war with what they have or what they can produce in the margins of industry and civil society. So that limits their capability. I suspect that Russia knows that its original objective of Occupying the whole of Ukraine or removing the government or shattering Ukraine as a functioning unitary state is beyond them. And they're beginning to set the conditions for the annexation into Russia of a lot of the territory that they currently occupy. And if they do that, they would have to know that they could defend it because Ukraine and the rest of us are going to reject that.
0: And do we know at this stage what are Russia's capabilities like? How much have they suffered already? And what's left of their capabilities?
2: So if the Russian armed forces were limited to the standing forces and the reserves and others that they can cobble together, we know that they are short of manpower and short of fresh equipment. However, they've not completely played out. So a new army corps is being created just to the east of Moscow called the Third Army Corps. It has a lot of new people in it, and they've rather been scraped together But it has a lot of new and quite modern equipment, and you can see Russian industry beginning to support that, although it doesn't in any way make up for the losses. So Russia is not played out, and in particular, it has an awful lot of artillery ammunition. Nobody knows whether it was 5 million or 15 million artillery rounds on the shelf when the war started. They probably used around 4.5 million, and they're buying ammunition from co-travellers such as North Korea so they aren't played out but they are beginning to wonder whether they can endure what's coming next and what's coming next is not just the Ukraine military in very large numbers it's the Ukraine military enabled by western will money industry and training and it's that mobilization of the west in support of the Ukrainian military which would be the decisive act in bringing this war
3: to an outcome. I think the important thing is this offensive was as much political as military to show European leaders that they're, particularly some of the more ambivalent ones like Germany, who were concerned about their relationship with Russia and about their energy supplies, to show that they weren't throwing good money after bad, that uh, they had to show that they could make gains with all the weapons that had been given and so on. That's certainly the case, and it's clear that the weaponry that the West has sent has has played a huge role in this. Again, the people I spoke to today were talking about the absolute accuracy of the Ukrainian artillery, and that has to be something to do with the advanced artillery that Britain and European countries in America have provided, the surveillance and intelligence help that we've given them. Success breeds success in that sense, and I think that will embolden and encourage countries to go on providing more weapons and maybe you know change the balance of force even more towards uh, the Ukrainian side.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, General Sir Richard Barons, the former head of Joint Forces Command in the UK, and Richard Spencer, currently the Times correspondent in Ukraine. You can find all of Richard's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Priyanka Deladia and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.